You're listening to a Fat Cat Media podcast. This is The Road Less Travelled, presented by Nikki Shea. The Road Less Travelled. G'day everyone, welcome to this week's edition of the Road Less Travelled podcast. It's Nikki Shea back with you for the Road Less Travelled, a podcast which captures the spirit of Australian travel, discovery and adventure. And each week we'll together experience glimpses of adventures, cooking, detecting, caravanning, camping and history all rolled into each episode made in Australia for Australians. Welcome to the Road Less Travelled. My name is Nikki Shea. And this week, well, before we get into this week's episode, you can follow the show through uh, Instagram and Facebook. Just search for the Road Less Travelled Podcast 2021 on Instagram, and you can check out the Facebook page of the Road Less Travelled Podcast. You can interact by dropping me an email, which is fatcat at iinet.net.au, or give me a call or SMS on 042-752-8467. If you've forgotten all that, simply jump onto the website, which is fatcatmedia.com.au, and fatcat spelt with a P-H-A-T-C-A-T. Welcome along to this week's show and this week it is a little bit of a step back in history. You will recall that we um, did a, a trip uh, the which was the Savannah Way part one and part two. You can jump back on to Fat Cat Media or, or wherever you listen to your podcasts to listen to those particular episodes, episodes 24 and 25 of season two and we spent a little bit of time in the northern part of WA up in the Kimberley region and that's where we are taking you. This week, we're jumping back to the Kimberley in Western Australia. Welcome to the Road Less Travel Podcast. Now, if you've never been to Wyndham, it's the northernmost town in the Kimberley region of WA, located on the Great Northern Highway. It is uh, about 2,210 kilometres northeast of Perth. It was established in 1886 to service a new goldfields at Halls Creek, and it's now now a port and service centre for the East Kimberley population around about 941. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, uh, these people make up about 54% of the population, and Wyndham comprises of two areas. The original town site at Wyndham Port, which is situated on Cambridge Gulf, and five kilometres by road and to the south is the Three Mile area with the residential and shopping area for the port, also founded in 1886. Now, Wyndham has a very hot and sort of semi-arid climate, being a little too dry to be classified as a tropical savanna climate, with a wet season from late November to March and a dry season, and when I say dry season, I mean dry season, from April to early November. The hottest month is November with an average maximum temperature of 39.5, and the coolest month is June with an average maximum around about 31 degrees. The annual average maximum temperature is 35.6, one of the highest in Australia, and in 1946, Wyndham recorded recorded 333 consecutive days of temperatures over 32 degrees. Imagine that back in 1946. The wet season is very, very humid with the average dew point temperature at 3pm in February being 22.4 degrees. In the dry season in August, it's 8.3 degrees and large rain events do occur in Wyndham, such as on the 4th of March 1919, when 12.5 inches, which is 318 millimetres of rain, was recorded over a 24-hour period, followed by another 4. 6 inches or 117 millimetres the very next day. So it is a very um, hot, semi-arid climate with um, plenty of wet season um, precipitation. So what brings us to Wyndham in 2022? Well, in 1932, so just bear with me, 
Uh, pilot Hans Bertram and mechanic Adolf Klausman were rescued while attempting to circumnavigate the world in a Junkers W-33 seaplane. After they departed Kupang in the Dutch Timor, they endured a storm in the Timor Sea and on the 15th of May they were forced to land in a remote coastal area of the Kimberley region in northern Western Australia, hence why we're here. The stranded men spent almost six weeks severely deprived of food and water and were close to death when they were rescued by a group of local Aboriginal fishermen on the 22nd of June. And to put it in perspective, 1932, it was the height of um, transcontinental travel and people trying to break records and circumnavigation attempts in aeroplanes. On the 29th of February in 1932, four aviators flew out of Cologne in Germany on a round-the-world flight attempt. The group comprised of pilot Hans Bertram, co-pilot Tom, mechanic Adolf Klausmann and cameraman Alexander von Lagario and was intended to find potential markets for Germans, the Germans' aviation industry and was also seen as a goodwill tour visiting German communities along the route. The plane was a Junkers W-33 seaplane with float configuration and it was named Atlantis. Now, over 10 weeks, the group successfully threw flew through Italy, Greece, Turkey, Iraq, India, Ceylon, Burma, Thailand, Malaya, the Dutch East Indies and Dutch Timor. After arriving in Jakarta, it was agreed that Bertram and Klausman would continue flying down the Indonesian archipelago and then on to Australia, while Tom and Von Lagio would travel separately and the four would then rendezvous in Shanghai, China. Now, the engine was overhauled in the Dutch naval aerodrome at what is now known as Sarabaya in the Dutch East Indies, and the pair departed from there on the 13th of May, stopping for fuel at a bay near Kupang on the western part of Dutch Timor the following day. At midnight on the 14th of May, Bertram and Klausman left Kopang for Darwin, expecting the 450 nautical miles, or 830 kilometres, the trip to take them about five to six hours. They flew over the Timor Sea and had intended to land at dawn the next day, but they encountered a severe storm and, low on fuel, they were forced to land their seaplane in the very first sheltered bay that they found. What they had done, they'd put down on the Kimberley coast, hundreds of kilometres west of the intended destination, and while they guessed that they had landed somewhere on Melville Island north of Darwin, they were actually at Cape, uh, Cape St Lambert, just north of the mouth of the Berkeley River, on the west coastline of the Joseph Bonaparte Gulf, about 370 kilometres southwest of Melville Island. They were extremely isolated and surrounded by harsh bush and on the first night they were visited by an Aboriginal man but were unable to communicate successfully with him so he left. The aviators with only 15 litres of fuel left decided to attempt a takeoff and head west in what they thought was the direction of Darwin. They managed to get airborne but were forced to land again in another bay about 35 kilometres away when their engine was cutting out as the plane was running out of fuel and it rolled up on the small beach. Being unable to find water, they could only think that the Aboriginal man that they'd met at the other bay might be able to provide help. So they secured the plane and set out to walk back to the previous bay. They were, though, plagued by the heat, thirst and hunger and were overwhelmed by swarms of flies. After attempting to swim across an inlet, they were chased by a crocodile and lost their clothes. Barefoot and naked, they abandoned their search and resolved to return to the plane. After seven days of walking more more of an inland route and without water, clothes or footwear and ravaged by mosquitoes and completely exhausted, they arrived back at their seaplane. 
They were now 13 days into the ordeal. The pair drained the radiator of the remaining water and removed one of the seaplane floats to use as a makeshift kayak and started paddling in a westerly direction. The ship, the MV Kulinda, passed by only 500 metres away but did not see them. They paddled on for four days and nights, eventually coming ashore north of Cape Burnia, east of King George River. Now, still thinking that they were on Melville Island, they decided to walk overland to find civilization. But when they discovered that they were not on an island, they returned to the float. The float by now had been damaged, so to be able to paddle it again, they had to cut off a section. The shortened float was not as seaworthy as previously used, so they only got a few kilometres before deciding it was too dangerous to continue, and they returned to shore where they found another shelter under a rock ledge at Cape Burnia. They remained there until finally being rescued. Now when it comes to the search and rescue, the Dutch gunboat, the HNLMS Flores, set out for Surabaya four days after the disappearance to search along the planned route across the Timor Sea. At the request of the German Consul General, the West Australian Government also commenced a land, sea and air search of possible landing sites. A West Australian Airways de Havilland DH-50 mail plane was chartered for the purpose. Coastal ships from the State Shipping Service were also notified to be on the lookout. On the 13th of June, a foot search by native trackers found a cigarette case bearing the initials HB and a handkerchief which were handed to a missionary passing in a boat. The details of the location were vague, however, and a malfunctioning telegraph delayed the information getting to the correct authorities, and when it eventually did land, the search was resumed with increasing vigour. Sixty people were directly involved in the search, which by now had received widespread publicity. The seaplane was located by a search aircraft on a bay near Rocky Island, 160 kilometres from Wyndham, on the 15th of June, but there was no sign of the men. Several days later, the Wyndham Meatworks launch, the Kimberley, arrived at the site and found a note left by the airman. It said, 27 May 1932, Australia. Today we left the plane in float as a boat in a westerly direction, Bertram. On the 22nd of June, the men were found sheltering in a cave near Cape Burnia by a group of Aboriginal people. They were both near death and had been lost for 39 days. A police overland party under Constable Marshall arrived a week later and they were taken by uh, taken rather to hospital at Wyndham by boat, arriving there on the 6th of July. The ordeal had taken 53 days. Klausman had become demented as a result of the tribulations and needed to be restrained. After convalescing in Wyndham, both men were taken to Perth. Now, Bertram accept, accepted an offer for a flight in West Australian Airways uh, mail plane departing from Wyndham on the 13th of July. The plane was greeted by a crowd of 6,000 at Maylands Aerodrome. In the evening, Bertram made a radio broadcast from the Australian Broadcasting Commission's office at 6WF, which was the first public relay from Western Australia to the eastern states. In Perth, Bertram was befriended by and stayed with the founder of West Australia's Airways, Norman Brearley. He returned to the site of the abandoned plane on the 18th of September with Fred Sexton, a WAA mechanic. They brought with them fuel and a replacement float from a de Havilland DH-50, which they managed to fit to the junkers. They then flew the plane to Perth. They landed in Matilda Bay on the Swan River on the 24th of September 1932. Klausman followed in late July in the Kalinda as he was considered too unwell to fly. He returned to Germany by steamer but never ever fully recovered. Now, after removing both of the floats from the plane, Bertram flew around Australia for several months, visiting cities and towns and giving talks. 
His arrival at Kalgoorlie was marred when he crashed the plane at the airport, causing extensive damage but no serious injury. Fred Sexton was flown to the town and assisted with repairs. Bertram returned to Berlin on the 17th of April 1933, where he received a hero's welcome. Now, Bertram wrote a book of the experience called, um, I won't translate, I won't speak German, I'll translate, it was Flight into Hell. He also had a successful career as a film director. And this is where my interest came into it. In 1985, there was a four-part television miniseries named, named Flight into Hell, and it was based on Hans Bertram book. It was made by the ABC, and uh, the, the makeshift canoe that was recovered from the staff of the West Australian Museum in 1979 is now on display, and you can see that at the Aviation Heritage Museum in Bull Creek in WA. So Hans Bertram's book became a bestseller in Germany in 1933, and in 1934 he joined the Nazi Party and the SA, which is the Shirts. Bertram's script for a drama set in an Australian gold mining town was made into a film called Women of Golden Hill, released in 90, 1938, and he went on to di- direct and put together a number of World War I aviation dramas and other novels as well. During World War II, Bertram wrote and directed two feature-length propaganda-orientated documentaries about German aviators. Um, while on active service with the Luftwaffe during 1941, he was shot down in Libya and taken prisoner. He was sent to POW camps in Australia, where he was to remain for the duration of the war. He wrote the scripts of 10 films completed between 1938 and 1985 and directed six films. And Bertram died in Munich in Germany in 1993. So Bertram went on to have successes we've learned, but poor old Adolf Klausmann, he seems to have uh, gone around the twist and never recovered from his ordeal. So while the tale would ultimately fade out of the national consciousness as the years passed, it remained fresh of the minds of people like myself and those like adventurer Mike Atkinson, who was inspired to complete the very same expedition after watching Flight into Hell as a young boy. He said, I remember thinking, you know, what's that about? I thought I wouldn't be cool. I wouldn't rather be cool to be in that sort of situation. Now Atkinson who documents his journeys on his website Outback Mike quips his friends and family weren't surprised when he informed them that he'd be heading out on a weeks long odyssey through crocodile infested waters on a handmade raft and after following extensive planning he completed the journey back in 2018 even meeting with a relative of one of the Aboriginal rescuers along the way. Atkinson said I asked him why would you try and rescue people that aren't treating you very well and he said they didn't care they just wanted to help people out when we come back from the break we'll find out a little bit more about mike atkinson and how he was inspired by flight into hell back with more in just a moment you're listening to the road less travel podcast fat cat media offers consultancy and advice if you are a motocross racer motorcycle racer trying to get ahead in the sport or perhaps you have a business in the motorcycle industry or you're hosting an event a stage show or a race meeting with over 25 years industry knowledge and experience we can help on a variety of platforms whether it be as a racer or for those within the motorcycle and motorsport industry. We help you individually and your event with clear and strong strategic plans with direction on how to achieve your goals as a racer or hosting an event within the industry. For more information, email fatcat at iinet.net.au. The Road Less Travelled podcast is a proudly Australian, fiercely independent podcast. Hosted and produced by me, Nikki Shea, for Fat Cat Media. We receive no corporate payments, which means we rely on self-sufficient financial support. 
If you can and are able to, we would love you to support us via Patreon. Listen to the Road Less Travel podcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iHeartRadio. Thanks for listening to The Road Let's Travel. You're with Nikki Shane. You can find out more about the podcast and what we do with Fat Cat Media heading to the website fatcatmedia.com.au. This week we're learning more about what happened in the flight into hell which landed on Australian shores north of Wyndham back in 1932. Before the break we we learned all about what had happened on that particular trip and also we started talking about Mike Atkinson. This guy is... Unbelievable. He decided to follow in the footsteps of Hans Bertram and Adolf Klausman. We'll find out more from Mike. Here. G'day. My name's Mike, and I'm just about to head off into the middle of nowhere for five to six weeks, surviving mostly on bush tucker. And I'm going to do it on this raft here, which I've just been building over the last 10 days. And I'm going to position myself in the middle of nowhere with no food and no water and see if I can get out to civilization on my own, just using my own skills. And why would I want to be in such a situation? Well, that is the same question that two German guys asked themselves when they ran out of fuel in their seaplane in 1932. They tried to survive their way out over about six weeks. They tried making a raft, they tried walking. Eventually, they gave up and were luckily rescued by local Aboriginal people. And those Aboriginal people still live in this town and throughout this region today. So I'm gonna place myself in the same situation with mock seaplane floats and see if I can survive my way out. So it's a pretty big adventure and it's been quite a while uh, making these floats. There's a lot of, uh, first of all, collecting drums or uh, a kind local here who's allowed me to use his uh, shed to build it, has collected some drums for me. And I basically welded them up and ground them, uh, painted them, cut down bush logs to make uh, the top of the raft and I've now moved it down onto the wharf and I've just had a test run in the water. It went pretty well. Uh, the, the test run I did yesterday didn't go so well. The engine was sitting a little bit low and the only reason I have an engine is so I can get to where the seaplane landed. From there on, I'll just be sailing, trying to sail my way out from there. So um, I'm gonna head off tomorrow. It'll be five to six weeks, uh, probably take me a week to get into the, uh, the bay where the aviators landed their seaplane. And then I'm gonna try and get the raft ready for sailing. I'm gonna sail it along the coast up to about 100 kilometers. Then I'll, I'll leave it and then I'll walk inland to where the nearest civilization was back in 1932 to see if I could have uh, rescued myself if I was in that situation. First thing when I get out there is I'll fix my position using the stars and I'll talk about that. And what I'm aiming to do is create a nice video that really describes what it's like to be on your own in the middle of nowhere surviving on bush tucker. Because I don't believe that the current uh, programs that you see on the TV and the internet really capture that. So I'm going to see if I can do that. So. Um, I've got a plan. I don't know if things will go to the plan because it's a very variable situation. Once you get out about 100 k's to the coastline up here and turn left, it's very large seas 
Uh, it's quite scary and it's quite easy to get smashed up on the rocks. There's very large tides, there's crocodiles, uh, sharks, there's a whole bunch of things that you really need to be very careful uh, and look out for. And I'm going in there with the permission of the local Aboriginal people, which has taken a while to get, and it's, but it's been a good process because I've got to meet the traditional owners and get a real sense of how important the land is to them. It's very important to me, but I know to them it's even more important because it really is part of everything uh, about them. And so I'll possibly be walking through areas where no white people have walked before. Now, I'll put the link up in the show notes about uh, Mike Atkinson and a link to his web- his website. He was aboard a raft made from 44-gallon drums and surrounded by crocodiles, and suddenly he began to have second thoughts when he was in his journey. The survival instructor and former military pilot had set off on what he thought would be a three-week expedition across WA's Kimberley region. The, bu- the raft wasn't big, and to the crocodiles, he probably appeared somewhat like a horse de ver, and he was the camembert cheese sitting on top. Throughout the adventure, Atkinson relied on his knowledge of bush food to survive. He said, there were times that I'd feel tired, my stomach would rumble loudly at night, and I get that dizzy feeling when you wake up. He was retracing an epic survival story, retracing the survival journey of those two German aviators stranded in the outback more than 80 years ago. And Hans Bertram and Adolf Klausman were on that round-the-world flight in a junker seaplane when they hit the severe storm between Timor and Darwin. Lost and running low on fuel, they put their plane down on the Kimberley coast hundreds of kilometres west of what their intended destination was, and they had no way of knowing where they were. They had no way of raising the alarm and were faced with the prospect of dying, and they had to convert their seaplane floats into a raft. After that 39-day ordeal, the malnourished men were rescued by Aboriginal people who found them sheltering in a cave and close to death. As I said earlier, that story was made into the ABC TV miniseries called Flight Into Hell, which captured the imagination not only of myself, but Mike Atkinson when he was a boy. He said, I did my best to only take with me the same items the aviators had. The trip took months of planning, including meeting with traditional owners and groups to get permission to access the land. To replicate the seaplane floats, Atkinson spent a week in Wyndham welding together 12 metal fuel drums that were lashed together with hand-cut bush logs. From there, he motored the raft 200 kilometres north to Seaplane Bay, where the German pilots landed. He then sailed the raft further along the coast for one week, surviving solely on bush tucker, which he uh, he was catching fish and collecting scallops at low tide. He said he felt quite emotional when he found the cave where the Germans were rescued. He said, it's definitely the place where I got a bit of a shiver. This is where they sat for a long time thinking that they were just pretty much going to die and this was actually the first place where he saw one of the local rescuers for the very first time. It's a story of endurance, strength and resourcefulness and Bertram gave an account in the event event years later in his memoir. He said, we were found by the natives of Australia, naked black men. When I tell you the Samaritans of the wilds tended and cared for us, you'll understand that I only wish to bear witness to the greatest and noble virtue of the human soul, which is charity. According to Ballingara man Matthew Wainer, the story has been passed down for generations and generation amongst local Aboriginal families. Matthew says they came up and gave them some fish from the ocean, chewed it up and gave it to them until they got strong enough. The Aboriginal people, if someone needed help, you'd give it to them. They didn't care what colour they were when they first saw you, they thought they're human like us, so they treated them the same as a human as well. 
The German aviators raft had been held at the WA Museum. Uh, maritime archaeologist Mike McCarthy said the rescue was one of the greatest untold stories of humanity, and I would agree with him there. It is an amazing story of endurance, strength and resourcefulness, one of real epics, and I believe it deserved a much bigger airing than it ever has done. On the final stage of the journey, Atkinson trekked 65 kilometres inland to the remote Aboriginal community of Columbaroo, and then he satayed his cravings for sugar and caffeine by downing three iced coffees and a cherry ripe. He says it's impossible for something ever to taste that good unless you've starved yourself or been through a situation like that for a while. He finished the trip in 2018 and has been able to release footage after securing permission from local Aboriginal elders. He said, if, I, if I'd come from Europe and knew what they knew, I didn't know if I'd have done as well as they did. My journey has been a very different journey to theirs, being Bertram and Klausman. I've only scratched the surface of what theirs would have been like. It's left me with the utmost respect for the aviators and the utmost respect for the Aboriginal people who rescued them. If you want to find out more about uh, Mike Atkinson, jump onto his website, which is outbackmike.com.au, and you can find out more of what he's been up to. His first film, Surviving the Outback, which was based on his Kimberley expedition, won multiple international film awards and was being distributed by Gravitas Ventures, which is the largest distributor of independent films in the US. It was his first full-up attempt to capture one of his own adventures in a high-quality video production. He planned it for years, and he used the latest in camera and drone technology to film it. You can follow him too on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and YouTube and you can also find his uh, latest up-to-date filmed adventure on the Great Barrier Reef. Check it out. It is outbatmike.com.au. And as is my love of history and also military history, I spent a, a day at the aircraft, mu- aircraft, the Air Force Museum at Bull Creek in Western Australia and put two and two together when I discovered the actual missing section of the float was on display and was presented to the museum in 1988. Now, as for the battered, sawn-off seaplane float that remained abandoned and lost until it was spotted by a WA Maritime Museum team 46 years later, in October 1979, Scott Sledge, who was the inspector of wrecks, accompanied the RAN and patrol boat HMAS Assail to excavate and retrieve the float, which was badly corroded from exposure to salt and extreme humidity variations of that harsh, harsh climate. The conservation and restoration of it saw that close inspection showed that much of the skin and many of the structural members had been completely destroyed by corrosion and that their shape was only kept by a sort of cemented mixture of oxidisation metal and the local brown clay and sand. Copper, rather, from the original Duralum had redeposited on parts of the sound metal and this had caused massive pitting. The float was acting like a sort of short-circuited battery and if it was left untreated it would have been completely destroyed. Dr Ian MacDonald... Dr. Ian McLeod, I beg my pardon, of the Museum's Conservation Laboratory, he developed a new treatment method to stabilise the corroding float. And early in 1982, David Gilroy of the Museum's Conservation Laboratory, he undertook to shore up the fragile artefacts so that it could go on public display. Flexible perspex was fitted to restore the shape of the perished end. Finally, the loose pieces of metal were painstakingly refitted so that much of the original float as possible could be displayed, and it was. The Junkers film replica of 
the plane, um, the Atlantis, that they built for the miniseries. That is on display at the RAAF Museum at Ball Creek in Perth, and the replica of the float is on display at the Broome Historical Museum. And the ship that narrowly missed rescuing um, the two German aviators on the Kimberley coastline, but the men, as we know, were eventually found uh, later on, it was the MV Kalinda in the aftermath of the battle between HMAS Sydney and the German auxiliary cruiser Cormoran in November 1941. The Kalinda recovered German sailors from a 31-man lifeboat and returned them to Carnarvon. So that's just a little aside of the MV Kulinda. If you've never been to Wyndham, a suitable starting point is Five Rivers Lookout. It's clearly signposted from Wyndham Three Mile and rises to the east of the town, which offers one of the most dramatic views anywhere along the Australian coastline. The view over the Five Rivers being the Durak, the King, the Pentecost to the south, Forest in the west and the Ord to the north, and the vast mudflats which spall in every direction give the look out a viewpoint which can only be bettered by actually flying over the town if you're lucky to do so. At the entrance to Wyndham Three Mile there's a large 20 metre long crocodile, it's a concrete crocodile in the middle of the road. It's hard to avoid it. The uh, tourist attraction is an interesting example of computer technology. It was designed and built by sculptor Andrew Hickson and the students from the Halls Creek TAFE. It consists of 5.5 kilometres of steel rod, 10 rolls of bird mesh and 6 cubic metres of concrete. It was created by photographing a crocodile and having it computer generated um, and it, uh, it's fantastic to look at. The crocodile lookout as well as we continue the town's fascination with crocodiles it's well justified. Cambridge Golf is teeming with them at the port which is just north of the wharf is the crocodile lookout but it's more historical than reality this used to be the site where blood from the town's meatworks drained into the gulf the local crocodiles eager for a little blood or leftover meat would gather on the muddy banks of the river and today the site is typical crocodile territory muddy mangroves and muddy water but a visitor would be very lucky to see a crocodile but they are there near the crocodile lookout are the old meatworks building as as the beginning of the road to the lookout there's a small display of trains and cranes which operated on the wharf the original late 19th century landing which was anton's landing was burnt down in 1944 and the wharf which now serves as Wyndham port was first built in 1919 to uh, coincide with the opening of the meatworks 40 meters north of the wharf is the wreck of the Kalama, which sank in 1947. It's totally submerged, but a hint of its location can be determined by the swelling waters. And we'll talk a little bit about the Kalama in upcoming adventures on the road less travel. While in Wyndham Port, stop in at the old post office. It's on the western side of the road, which is now the Tourist Information Centre and the Post Office Museum. It is located over the road from the low security prison, surely one of Wyndham Port's strangest sites. It's quite common to see prisoners knocking fruit from the trees in the prison grounds or sitting on the grass sunning themselves and watching the world go by. At Wyndham Three Mile, the local Aboriginal population have constructed a set of huge statues depicting an Aboriginal family complete with a dingo and kangaroo. And in the same street is a wonderful relic of Wyndham's steamy nights, a classic outback cinema with comfortable deck chairs, a small screen and enclosed projector booth. The area around Wyndham is surrounded by places of great interest. Along the King River Road is Prison Tree, a hollowed-out old boab tree which was used as a temporary lock-up by the local police. And on the road to Kununurra, the grotto, which is signposted the west of the road, is certainly worth a visit. Staircases ca- star- carved out of the rock lead to a quiet waterhole oasis in a kind 
kind of cool amphitheatre. It's one of those strange anomalies in the landscape. Access to the grotto is along two kilometres of reasonable dirt road. Tourist information is available at Wyndham Tourist Information Centre and you'll find that in Kalama Street in Wyndham. And if you want to phone ahead, give them a call on 089-161-1281. That wraps up this week's edition of the Road Less Travel Podcast from Wyndham in the north of the Kimberley in Western Australia. And we focus this week on Flight Into Hell, which was the um, book made into a miniseries by Hans Bertram, which told the story of those two aviators lost in the desert in 1932. And I really advise you to have a look at the miniseries. It's available on YouTube. Check out Mike Atkinson's website too, where he's got some great um, YouTube videos of his adventure. And for more information, you can also Google the flight into hell and see if you can get a copy of the book and read the exploits of Hans Bertram and Adolf Klausman back in 1932. Hope you've enjoyed this week's Adventures of the Road Less Travelled podcast. My name's Nikki Shea. Thanks so much for your company. And I hope to see you out there very soon on the road. Take care. Talk to you next week. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. The Road Less Travelled is presented by Nikki Shea and produced by Fat Cat Media. 